Okay. Can you hear me? No. <laughs> uh, can you hear me? Is that? Okay. Good morning. This morning we're looking at communication. It's really a fascinating subject when you think about it, especially all the ways that communication can go wrong. I'm going to teach you some of the, the basics of communication, but I also want to tie it directly to how we communicate the gospel message. My, the main point that I want to get across this morning, and we're going to come at this from different angles, is in our witnessing, the only thing that gets communicated is what the other person hears. The only thing that gets communicated is what the other person interprets. This morning we're going to break down communication into three components. There's perception, which is the way we interpret reality, the way reality appears to us. There's expression, when we want to explain to someone or talk about reality, we express ourselves in uh, verbal codes and nonverbal codes. And then the third aspect of communication is understanding, where we try to receive the message. So there's perception, it's the first component. There's the sending of the message, which is the expression. And then there's the receiving of the message, which is understanding. Uh, perception is really a fascinating thing when you think about it. We're totally bombarded by sensory data. We have sensory overload. We're constantly getting images, sounds, sights. And we can't, if we just were like a computer disk, passively receiving all the input from the data around us, we'd go crazy. So our perception is very selective. We're selective in what we choose to focus on. I'm sure you've had the experience, you're in a crowded room, and the, all the conversation is just white noise until you hear your name. Suddenly, you tune in, you, you block out everything else, and you are listening to that conversation. We're very selective in what we tune into, and we're also very selective in what we remember. When you think about yesterday, you'll have already forgotten most of what happened yesterday, but your perception will have chosen to remember a few select <coughs> things. Now, based on this selection, what you choose to remember, what you choose to tune into, is also added to the fact that you fill in the blanks, that you add to what you perceive. We uh, don't like blank spaces, we, so we fill in the blanks. We gather the data, we're selective with the data, but then we fill in the blanks. For example, when you get to know someone, imagine that person to be a grid with a hundred different spaces of information. Now when you get to, when you first meet a person, most of those spaces are covered over by a flap called the unknown. When you get to know a person, you get to pull back a few of those flaps. You see their looks, you see their personality, you see whether you have a sense of humor. Now, based on what you uncover in those first few flaps, you will be tempted to fill in the rest. Now, this is why 
people often have crushes on someone that they don't know very well. Because when you full pull back those first few flaps, guys, if you see a young woman and she is beautiful, has a great smile, and has a great personality, that's three flaps out of a hundred. But you will automatically fill in the rest of the blanks as someone who has a deep walk with God, who is someone who is deeply spiritual, someone who has a great prayer life, because how could anybody that beautiful not be so spiritual? Now, if you meet a girl who's less than attractive, you're going to fill in the blanks with a lot of other nice things. <laughs> she must have authority issues, or she's probably apathetic or loose or something. We fill in the blanks based on what we want to see, but we also fill in the blanks based on stereotypes. Stereotypes are when we have to categorize people. And we're, whatever the categories, shy, outgoing, maybe it's public schooler, maybe it's a homeschooler, and you just assume certain things about everybody who is in this category. So when you see someone, you're, you're frantically trying to place them in a category. If they're the jocks, if they're the homemakers, whatever that may be, you're trying to put them in that category. How this affects evangelism is unbelievers have their stereotypes of Christians based on past experience. And their stereotypes of who we are will affect our message. And we need to be aware of how they're perceiving us. Because if perception, if I bend this a certain way, if perception is like this, you can't just go straight to straighten it out. To straighten it out, you've got to adjust the message accordingly. You have to bend it actually further back just to get it straight. You need to be aware of people's perception filters. Uh, you need to be aware of what type of interaction a person has had with believers before. If he came from a very strict, fundamentalist home where there was no joy, where Christianity was just a drudgery, that's going to be his perception of Christians. If this person had experience with the cult, their perception of Christians is just going to be that Christians are unthinking, that they're just following, they're sheep who just follow whatever. And you need to be aware of how they're perceiving us. Uh, someone with the Barna Group did a, wrote a book called Unchristian, and they polled a bunch of outsiders to see what is, a, what is the Christian perception, what is the perception of Christians, I should say, out there among unbelievers or outsiders. Uh, some of the first things is that Christians are homophobic, that they just can't stand the idea of homosexuals even being on this planet. Other things that they perceived about Christians was that all they cared about was getting them saved, which didn't mean a concern for their eternal well-being. It just meant getting them to join their club, and people felt used. Other things, Christians are too sheltered, too political. These are just a few of the things that Christians are perceived as. So we need to be aware of how we're being perceived, but we also need to be aware of how we're interacting with unbelievers. How are we affecting their perception of unbelievers? Are we giving people the impression that Christians don't really care about the person they're trying to reach? They're just trying to ha get their agenda of witnessing done? In a lot of the books I've read on witnessing, several of the authors had an experience, even though they were Christians, they had other Christians come up to them, witness to them, be rude, not care about this person's schedule, 
and walk away thinking that they had shared the gospel, not even taking the time to realize that they were actually witnessing to a Christian, to a believer. So stereotypes, how are you, need to, you need to realize, you need to ask, how is this person's previous stereotype, stereotypes affecting how they're interpreting your message? But you also need to be aware of how am I affecting this person's stereotype. Another thing about perception is perception is, af is affected by past experience. Most of you would not at all be offended by the phrase killing themselves laughing or I killed myself laughing. My wife, who lost a sister to suicide, that s cliche is a bit of a barb to her and brings back painful memories. Past experiences affect your perception. Uh, also, present feelings affect a person's perception. I'm sure you know, when you are tired, a movie does not seem funny. Unless you get extra tired, then it seems super funny. <laughs> <laughs> but if you have a headache, if you are depressed, this, you're not going to interpret life the same way. Proverbs says, he who sings songs to heavy heart, it's something bad. <laughs> but you need to be aware, this person that you're witnessing to, what are they feeling right then? Are they feeling joyful? Are they feeling happy, a sense of purpose? Are they feeling down? If someone's asking you about the problem of evil, you cannot just give a one answer fits all. If this person has just been raped, if this person has just grieved to death, they're not ready for an intellectual answer. They need God's other answer, which is his love. Their minds are numb. They're not thinking clearly because they're in so much pain. So you need to first deal with the pain. Do you get, a, do you get this idea of how drastically perception can alter what we think is reality? And it's so important in communication to recognize that we, the way we see reality may not be the way someone else is seeing reality or interpreting reality. My wife and I encountered something that made this point pretty clear to us when we were first married. Because my perception of myself was that I was uh, eat whatever she served me and just be totally grateful about it. And I thought, what a joy I must be to cook for. My wife's perception, on the other hand, was that I was a picky eater, someone who was overly critical of what she was serving. And I had no idea she was perceiving me this way. Until one night after we'd been married for several months, she, it all came out in this teary late night conversation about how it was getting to be a pain to cook for me. She was worried about serving me the meal because I would find something to criticize about it. And I was just laying there absolutely shocked. I thought, how much weight does a guy need to gain to prove that he's not a picky eater? But see, our perception was affecting how we were perceiving it based on our labels, our stereotypes. I had labeled myself as someone who was not picky, someone who was just grateful. And my criticism, I thought, was just based on the fact that she had asked me, you know, I want to cook exactly the way you want to eat. 
So I thought, what an awesome opportunity. As the oldest of 11, you didn't get that opportunity to critique the food. You were just happy to eat whatever was served in front of you. But now that we were married, I thought, here's an opportunity to tailor all the meals exactly the way I like them. So when she would serve a meal, I would say, boy, this was a really great meal. Here's how you can improve on it. <laughs> she was interpreting that as criticism. So my label was that I was uh, just a grateful, eat anything, very unpicky. Her label for me was that I was a picky eater. And it was affecting our perception of the data. And so since that time, I was so grateful to do that. And I'm aware of her perceptions, and I can adjust it. I realize now I need to be a lot more careful with how I suggest improvements. And I just need to be a lot more grateful. And I also, she saw it from my perspective. I was defining picky as someone who refuses to eat certain foods. And I didn't refuse to eat anything. Her idea of picky was someone who just critiqued different aspects of the food. So those labels will affect how we perceive people. And you know, we have a bunch of labels of how we perceive unbelievers. We perceive them as someone who's not interested in God, someone who's just hard-hearted. And you see someone, and it's so easy to just fill in the blanks about who that person is, about what they're going through, before you even take the time to get to know them. But you, we need to have a strong, we need to develop a mistrust of our perception. To realize we do not see things as clearly as we think we do. We do not know this person as clearly as we think we do. That's the first point I really want to drive home. Our perception can be so easily warped. Another thing that changes our perception of things is we observe and we interpret. But what we don't always see is where we worked an interpretation into this. For example, someone is asking you a bunch of personal questions. Now, you can interpret this two different ways. You can interpret this as this person just being caring, loving, and interested. Or you can interpret this as this person being nosy and obnoxious. It's the same data that you're observing, but your interpretation is going to affect your perception of it. Now, if you interpret this person's actions as they're being nosy, you're not going to be aware of the fact that you worked an interpretation in there. You're going to think, I just observed this person being nosy. And it's the same way with guys and girls' interactions. You're either going to interpret a woman's actions as them being flirty or them being friendly. And you're going to tell yourself, I observed that person being flirty. Well, did you really observe that? Or did you just observe that person being friendly and you interpret it as being nosy? Very important to try to make distinctions between what did I observe and what did I interpret. So that's the first aspect of communication, perception. The next aspect of communication is expression. Now, unfortunately, we're not mind readers. I have thoughts in my head, and I'm going to try to express them to you. But you cannot just read my mind about what I'm thinking, as much as some girls will expect you to be able to do that. And <laughs> guys may be expected to. But we cannot, we're not mind readers. 
So when we want to express what we're thinking, we use verbal codes we, and we attach meaning to these codes, to these words. So we encode meaning into the message that we're sending. The problem is that the other person now has to interpret the message that you sent. And they may apply a different meaning to the word, I'm trying not to be too technical, but do you see what's happening? You're, you're attributing meaning to a certain word, and the only thing that's getting communicated is the meaning that that person attributes to that word. And you cannot just say, well, this word has a dictionary definition, and that, well, that's what I said, and that's what I meant. The only meaning that a word has is the meaning that you are putting into it for the sake of communication. When we, before my wife and I started our relationship, we were going down to Helena for a, a Senate hearing, a bunch of young people, and we were playing this game where you had to say what you really thought of the person on your right. Now, just so has I was on my wife's right, and I was very eager to find out what does she think of me. I was very curious about this. this she started out by saying that I was incorrigible. Now, I thought, well, I don't really know what that word means. I think it means something negative, but I'm sure she means it in a positive way. Well, I went home and I looked up incorrigible in the dictionary. And it, the dictionary definition of incorrigible is <laughs> terribly bad without hope of reform. She emailed me later that day, the next day, and said, I didn't mean it that way. She felt terrible when she looked up the dictionary. Which how she meant it was, she said she meant it undaunted, was that I, I don't back away from a challenge, I don't give up easily. <laughs> a much more positive meaning. But do you see that the, the meaning of incorrigible, for the sake of the communication, wasn't the dictionary definition, it was the meaning they were putting into it. Now, when you become a Christian, you, get, you adopt a whole set of Christian language, Christian terminology. Words like blessing, words like salvation, words like redemption, sanctification, the Holy Spirit, faith, trust, belief, repentance. The first two sessions, I was trying to break down what these things mean to you. But you've got to remember that when you go start using these verbal codes to a non-believer, you're going to be speaking a different language, and they will not be able to understand. I wrote an example of a witnessing encounter to show you some of the challenges that an unbeliever faces in interpreting or deciphering these words that you're using. So the Christian asks the non-Christian, how do you plan on getting into heaven? The non-Christian says, by being good enough. The Christian says, no, you have to accept Jesus into your heart by saying the sinner's prayer and then you'll be saved. So the non-Christian thinks about it. You mean, your good news is that the world is going to hell in a handbasket, but you have this magic chant that will send them to heaven. If all people have to do is say this magic incantation, why isn't God putting this all over billboards, having rocks and trees, saying, say this prayer and you'll get into heaven. That's how the unbeliever interprets that. The Christian says, no, you also have to believe, then you'll be saved. So the non-Christian thinks about it. It says, you're saying 
that in order to be saved, I have to bring myself to believe some things that I don't think are true. So God gives us a brain and a desire to know the truth and then penalizes us for using our brains. You think about how difficult this is for a non-believer. When we tell them you must believe in Jesus in order to be saved. If I said I have a million dollars to anybody who can truly believe that there is a visible pink elephant in this room, I'm giving you strong incentive to believe that there is a visible huge pink elephant in this room. But can any of you truly bring yourself to believe that there is a visible pink elephant in this room? You may lie, there's a strong incentive to lie that you believe that there's, you, you believe in it. But you can't bring yourself to believe it. And do you see how that message of, of Christianity seems very confusing to the non-believer? When we say, you have to believe this, you don't give them any evidence, but you say, you have to believe. That just is going to strike them as terribly cruel. I mean, what kind of a, a presentation if, if, if I was saying, you know, if you do not believe in this pink elephant in this room, you are going to hell. You're not going to believe that, and it's going to be so confusing. And so many Christians, they say you must believe in Jesus without explaining what they mean by believe. And no wonder it's as striking the unbeliever as nonsense. So the Christian, in this conversation, he, he sidesteps the issue, says, Friend, Jesus is the only way. If you don't believe in Jesus, you will go to hell. So the non-Christian thinks about this again. So, if God's so loving and wants me to go to heaven, why does he put this in this catch that prevents most of the world from ever getting to heaven? See, the unbeliever recognizes the fact that lots of people have been born in this world who have never heard about Christ, and God says, in order to be saved, you have to believe in Jesus, but they never get the chance. That's going to be very confusing to them. So the Christian doesn't really answer the questions, but he just said, Jesus is the one who paid the pardon for your sins. All you have to do is accept this free gift. The non-Christian says, wait a second. You're kidding. You're saying that if I believe, if I accept this gift of pardon, no matter what I do, I'm going to be forgiven? Boy, if you Christians really believe that, you must be some of the most dangerous people on the face of the earth because you're no longer worried about consequences. You mean, I can do whatever I want and I'm going to be forgiven. Wow, that sounds interesting. So the Christian says, well, that's not exactly what I meant. You can't do whatever you want, you also have to obey. So the unbeliever says, okay, so now we're back to where we started from. This is all about good works, isn't it? The Christian says, no, we're not saved by works. Salvation is a gift. It's like a free ticket to heaven. All you have to do is accept it. Well, this non-Christian at this point is pretty eager to end this conversation and says, free gift? I've always been a sucker for freebies. Sign me up. Did the gospel get communicated to this person? No, but think about how many Christians would look back at this conversation and be so proud of themselves as a faithful witness. They got, the, they got in the fact that salvation's a free gift. They got in the fact that Jesus is the only way. They got in the fact that there's repentance. They got in the fact that um, we have to, we're, we're saved by faith. And the Christian goes, wow, I, I just gave such a clear gospel presentation. I'm so proud of myself. But the only thing that gets communicated 
is what the person receives, what the person interprets. This is why we need to learn to speak their language. We need to put the gospel into their words. You know, we would never expect to be able to... Let me back up. Some of us think that the best way to preach the gospel is just to quote Bible verses to people. And some people have their inspired version. Some people, it's only the King James English, everything other version is a perversion. So they just go around quoting King James English and thinking that they're being a faithful witness. Here's why I think that is naive. If you went to the heart of China where they speak Mandarin Chinese and started quoting King James English at people, how effective is this going to be? I mean, all those Chinese people are going to be like, no comprendo. That's my Chinese phrase. <laughs> You're going to have to speak their language. And language is constantly changing. Someone quipped that there's over six billion languages in the world. Because each person is using words and languages, the nuances of the language, in their own way. So with speaking the gospel and reading God's word to people and preaching the word, it's not enough just to preach the word in your native tongue. You also need to speak the gospel in the words that they will understand. Because it's not enough just to speak your language, you got to speak their language. And you know, this is, I think, one of the reasons Jesus used stories so often is because stories communicate ideas and they cross that language barrier so much more effectively. You know, the story of the prodigal son, it's a story that we can be pretty sure of the meaning of regard, without getting hung up on specific words. We may not understand what prodigal means. Does anybody here know what prodigal means? Prodigal means extravagant, reckless. Um, but my point is that the story communicates God's love and God's heart for his wayward children much more than just talking about God's love. And the story of the Good Samaritan, it communicates how God wants us to treat our neighbors and see it. The story of the shepherd seeking the lost sheep, these communicate, these stories communicate the ideas. This is why we need lots of analogies and stories that will reach people and help them understand the essence of the gospel. Now this is why I spent the first two sessions really breaking down and explaining what the gospel is. Not because I'm just trying to evangelize you. I know most of you are solid believers. But the important thing is, is you're not just wanting to be saved yourself, you also want to know how do I communicate the gospel in a way that people will understand. So we need to understand that the way we are using these words may not be the way the person we're speaking to is using them. Especially we need to be aware of a person's worldview. The next session is going to be in how worldview will affect the gospel presentation, how to address a person's worldview before they can even be receptive to hear the gospel, and how to discern what a person's worldview is. But a person's worldview is going to affect how they interpret your gospel message. For example, if you are 
talking to an atheist and you are saying God has these moral requirements for your life, he's not going to get it. If you're making the claim that Jesus is God, he doesn't have a framework that even comprehends the reality of the deity of Christ or the existence of God. I have this atheist friend, I actually debated on a national television up there on the, the, on the historical evidence for the resurrection, but we've had emails back and forth and it's really helped to put myself in his shoes to realize that when I talk about God, he's interpreting what I'm saying as a private experience I'm having with a figment of my imagination. He's not understanding that I'm referring to an objective being who is truly out there, who is the same whether I believe in him or not. I need to establish that when we need to be aware of our terminology. Also, when we're dealing with someone who was in the cults, words like when you're talking to a Mormon, for example, they use a lot of the same Christian phrases. Jesus, God the Father, salvation, heaven. But they're putting an entirely different message into there. When they say God, they're not talking about an immaterial, all-powerful, self-existent being. They're talking about a glorified human being who once was a man like us, a man that we can inspire to. When they talk about Jesus and Satan, we think that they're spirit brothers and that Jesus got the job of getting to be our savior and dying on the cross and Satan was so jealous that he became his enemy, Jesus' enemy, trying to thwart them. We cannot just go out and use Christian terms and expect it to be a clear gospel presentation. We've got to speak in the language of that person. Sometimes it means educating them on what certain words mean. But just asking people to have faith, do you realize what people think of faith? Faith is a, if you watch any Disney movies or any of the inspirational type movies and they talk about having faith, what kind of faith are they talking about? A blind belief that you cling to regardless of what the evidence says. Is that the kind of faith that God sees as worthwhile? Is that the kind of faith that God is asking us to have? No, the kind of faith that God's asking us to have is trust. But if you just say, have faith to someone, they're thinking, you're saying, just believe regardless of how stupid, of how silly this looks, just believe. So you need to address a person's words so that they can understand you. Uh, you know, along with these verbal codes that we're giving, someone mentioned the movie Hitch last night, and on there the, the doctor says that, you know, what you say is only about 10% of what is getting communicated. So much of the way you dress, the way you act, we're communicating so much before we even open our mouth. We're not always sending the right signals, but think about what are you communicating to the unbeliever? You know, we're a living gospel message, but is your action and your attitude, is it communicating that God is good or that God is oppressive? 
You know, Christopher Hitchens, I don't know how many of you have heard of him, a very um, outspoken atheist who has all the evangel evangelical fervor of a Southern Baptist evangelist. And he has this passion to get people to stop believing in God because he thinks, as his book says, religion poisons everything. But Christopher Hitchens says that if Christians really believed what they were saying, that there is an all-powerful, all-good, loving God who has their best interests in heart, Christians would be some of the happiest people you would ever encounter. But Christians aren't the happiest people, therefore they don't really believe what they have to say. That's a pretty scathing rebuke. And you need to ask yourself, do you really believe what you're claiming to believe? Do you really believe that you're forgiven and free? Do you really believe that Christ has conquered the powers of evil and that you can be free from your sins and your addictions? Do you really believe that God is sovereign and in control? Because your actions are going to be sending this message to people. Your actions and attitudes are going to be sending this message to people. That's why it's so important that you make the gospel real, that you make this relationship with God real in your life, because that's going to be communicating so much to the unbeliever. What are your nonverbal codes communicating? Speaking of nonverbal codes, our little girl Sophia is 14 months, and she has just learned the head shaking. And it's so funny because sometimes she means yes and sometimes she means no. And she's still figuring out what she means by that. Do you want to get out of the car seat? No, I think you do. <laughs> she's learning these nonverbal codes. And, you know, in different cultures, there is all types of nonverbal codes, ways you can offend people. In Japan, if you smile showing your teeth, you're offending people because showing your teeth is a sign of aggression. It's true in some parts of Japan. I should need to qualify that. But what are you communicating with your nonverbal signals? Just be aware of this. What are you expressing? What signals are you sending? St. Francis of Assisi said, preach the gospel at all times, and if necessary, use words. It is important, though, to use words, because there's some aspects of the gospel that will not, cannot be communicated just through nonverbal communication. But it's so important to realize what are you communicating with your actions? What are you communicating with your attitudes? So what was the first aspect of communication? Perception. Perception. What was the second aspect of communication? Expression. Expression, right. So the how we perceive reality and the sending of the message. But then there's also the receiving of the message. How we interpret it. You know, most of us are not as good listeners as we think we are. There's all sorts of barriers to becoming a good listener. Um, one of the problems in what gets in the way of, of listening to someone is we get so hung up on the details. A wife tells her husband, you were always late for dinner. The husband gets hung up on that little detail, the word always, and says, no I'm not, completely misses the fact that he's late for dinner five times out of seven, but he gets defensive because he got hung up on the little detail. 
This is what happens so often in communication breakdown. Someone uses a word a certain way or someone gets a little factual error and we cannot hear what that person says because we get all hung up on the little detail. We need to make sure we don't miss the forest for the trees to try to get beyond the little details. You realize communication is such a challenge. Good communication, there's going to be a lot of wheat and a lot of chaff. Just naturally, it's going to happen. Good communicators learn how to sift through the, cha the, the chaff and get... Do you think most of you know what chaff is? This isn't a, a farming community. The chaff is the, is the outer shell that gets discarded so that we can have the wheat. Then the communication, there's a lot of chaff a lot of stuff that says that we don't mean communication is messy. And so you've got to determine what's the good stuff, what's this person really trying to say, and what is this person saying that they didn't really mean. I, I, I heard that we think in about a thousand words per minute, some more, some less, but we speak in about 150 to 200 words per minute, but I'm sure I, I know some girls who speak faster than that. But so we're, we speak in about 150 to 200 words per minute, and we think in about 1,000 words per minute. And you see how the mind is going a whole lot faster than the mouth is. And when we're listening to someone, our mind's going a whole lot faster than that person can speak to us. And it allows so much time to slip misunderstandings in there. Another thing that we get so hung up on is the way people use a certain word. You know, I'm sure each of you have different convictions on dating versus courtship. And maybe you've had discussions on it. But dating and courtship are just labels. You can date in a way that protects your future spouse and glorifies God. And you can do courtship in a way that is defrauding. It's not enough to just slap a label and say dating versus courtship. But if a, if, if, a man, if a couple Christian young people are having a, dis, a dis strong disagreement about whether a Christian should date or not, don't just keep arguing over the word dating. Ask, what do you mean by that word? When you're having a doctrinal dispute with someone uh, over free will and determinism, and they say they don't believe in determinism, Ask what they mean by determinism. Ask what they mean by free will. When you're talking to someone, it's so helpful to get into the habit of saying, by repentance, I mean this. By dating, I mean this. Whatever it is, don't expect the person to know what you mean just because you use a certain label. I've seen so many disagreements and heated arguments because people are hung up on the word. They're hung up on the label. So it's important to say what you mean and not get hung up on it. And if you are getting hung up on the way a per person is using a certain word, say you're in a conversation with an unbeliever and that person says, I don't believe in God. Stop and say, okay, what do you mean by God? Because it's possible you don't believe in the God he doesn't believe in either. If he believes God is just a glorified human like the Mormons believe and says, I don't believe in, in God. Well, you don't believe in that God either. If his view of God is the Muslim God that is so f 
fatalistic and creates good and evil and doesn't even give humans the dignity to choose or able the ability to relate to him, uh, that's a God you don't believe in either. So when someone says, I don't believe in God, ask, what do you mean by God? Maybe I don't believe in him either. Someone says, whatever it is, I don't think we should be, I don't think we can be saved by faith alone. Ask them, well, what do you mean by faith? Maybe I agree with you. Because being saved by faith alone does not mean that we're saved by blind fantasy alone. It's trust in what Christ has done. Here's some other distractions that happen. One is pride. We assume we know what a person is going to say before they say it. So we fill in the blanks. We expect the person, we think we know what they're going to say. Another thing is defensiveness. I find that when I'm defensive and when I'm in a, a disagreement, I'm so busy formulating my comeback, my response, that I'm not really taking the time to listen. A, a tremendously valuable habit to get into whenever you're in a debate. I'll give you a couple things. Whenever you are in a heated discussion, I read a book written by an English professor who was actually a cop in one of the roughest sections in LA. And he says, he tells police officers, the most dangerous weapon you carry around is not your gun, it's your cocked tongue. Your tongue will either infuriate, inflame the situation, or your tongue will diffuse a situation. When you're in a heated disagreement with someone, what this cop said, the, the best way to diffuse the situation is to project empathy. To acknowledge that you can see this from his point of view, you can recognize why he's feeling threatened. And when a person feels understood, a person just completely relaxes, puts their guard down. This is so valuable in any conversation, in any disagreement. Project empathy. Show and you don't just project empathy, but just putting yourself in that person's shoes is going to be a huge help in communication. The other thing you need to do is give descriptive feedback. You know, in medieval times, when they had a debate, one person would give their position, and the other person who was debating them, before they were able to attack that position that was just presented, they had to, the second person had to put in his own words what his opponent's position was and what his opponent's reasons for holding that position was. And he had to keep repeating it until the first person was satisfied that he had accurately portrayed his position. Only then was the second person allowed to debate that position. Because what so often happens in argument, it's a, it's a fallacy called the straw man fallacy, where you attack a position that your, a pos that your opponent isn't really holding, but it's so much easier to tear down. So for example, when an atheist attacks the idea, the belief in creationism, he says, I want to let you know that Christians believe that the world was created in, uh, on October something, 404 BC. Well, I can shoot that theory down really easy. We have archaeological evidence that goes back five, six, seven thousand years. That's proof that my opponent's wrong. 
Well, did he really deal with the finer points of creationism? He set up a straw man that was easy to knock down. My point here in all this is we need to, when there's a disagreement, make sure we understand the person's position. When we're dealing with an unbeliever and you're saying they don't believe in Christianity or they don't believe in God or they can't go to do formalized religion, they can't go to a church, you need to understand why they're saying what they're saying. Learn to give descriptive feedback and ask for descriptive feedback. You know, when I said the only thing that gets communicated is what the other person hears, how in the world are you going to know what the other person heard or what the other person interpreted unless you ask the right questions, unless you ask? So after you've explained repentance or trust in Jesus Christ or the finished work of cross, these are Christian phrases, after you ex explain them to someone, take the time to ask, what did you hear me say? I want, what's your understanding of what I just said? When you are in the position of listening, ask, this is what I heard. Is this what you said? Is this what you meant? This will be enormously helpful, and it will keep the conversation from getting too worked up. Do you realize that whenever you are persuading of someone, or you're changing someone's mind, first of all, appreciate how enormously difficult it is for someone to change their mind. We think witnessing should make so much sense to people, but if I came in here and gave a Muslim presentation of the Muslim, their version of the gospel, how receptive would you people be to change? You wouldn't be. So can you at least appreciate the position that the unbeliever's in? This unbeliever's thought about these things, and it's difficult. In order to change someone, there's three components, just like candle. You need to melt that person, then you need to remold, and then you need to harden. Those are the three stages of converging, converting someone. You need to melt them, you need to reshape their thinking so it's in line with God's principles, but then you also have to give them discipleship so that their convictions can harden. Why I bring that up is, when you're talking to someone, are you presenting an attitude of antagonism and pride that is actually hardening that person against your message? Do you realize that when we make decisions, we don't just use our mind? There's, I don't know how you break it down, there's differing statistics on it, but 15 to 25% of what we do, we choose just strictly for rational reasons. There's some 75% non-rational factors that influence why we believe something, why we choose certain things. And in your interactions with unbelievers, you need to ask yourself, am I hardening this person against the gospel by being obnoxious, by acting like I don't care about their time schedule, that I don't care about finding out where they are on their spiritual journey, that I don't care about how they're interpreting my message? Does the unbeliever really feel like you care about them as a person? Or do, are you communicating that you only care about them as a project? You know, I have been in so many witnessing encounters and they have been so uncomfortable because I change. I'm no longer just trying to get to know this person in an ordinary 
relaxed, natural way. I'm trying to have an artificial conversation with them where I've got my agenda for the conversation. I want to get my message out and hopefully my, my hands will be clean because I got my message out. But do you see the communication is so much more complicated than that? And we need to understand where this person is at, what's relevant to them, what they're feeling, how they're going to be interpreting the message, what their past experiences are. Communication is difficult. So I really want to urge you young people to first of all remember first and foremost that the only thing that's getting communicated is what the other person hears. And the only way you're going to be able to see if, to be able to check if the message is really getting across is by giving descriptive feedback and asking for descriptive feedback. I want to give you one other relationship principle. And if one thing sticks from this, aside from the evangelistic messages, I want this to be the one thing because this one communication principle has helped me and my conversations with others and it's helped my wife's and I communication more than any other principle that we've discovered. I can say this <laughs> in all sincerity, I'm not just using hyperbole. This principle is that when we speak, we speak in terms of our perception. We say, this is how this appeared to me, this is what I heard. When we speak in terms of our perception, it forces the other person to listen to what we're saying. When we start out with accusing you statements, you said this, you did this, you were insensitive, the other person is immediately getting defensive and they're not listening to what you're saying. When you say, this is what I heard you say, is this what you meant? The other person is forced to listen to your point of view because you're acknowledging that it, what they actually said could be different than what you interpreted. So whenever we have a disagreement or a situation, my wife and I have gotten to the habit, and it's so helpful, to use I statements. Remember the simple principle, use I statements. Acknowledge your perception. Just, it helps so much to acknowledge our limitations of perception, to recognize that we could be wrong. And then what that does is it frees us up to ask for clarification. Because Satan loves to sow discord among believers. He loves to lie to us about what other people are thinking and doing. So use that principle. One other thing. You know, another reason people are not completely honest is because they don't feel safe. Some people deliberately conceal what they're thinking and feeling because they don't feel safe. It takes a lot, it's a, it takes a lot of vulnerability. You make yourself very vulnerable when you open up and ask these personal questions about religion, about matters of significance and purpose. And you need to ask yourself, are you giving this person a safe place to open up? Are they sensing a judgmental, critical spirit from you? you think you're going to ever open up about these most personal matters to someone who is projecting a critical spirit? You know, it's going to take a lot of work with some people to win their trust, to win their faith, to demonstrate that you are a safe person to open up to. That when they have questions, you're never going to ridicule them. 
you're never going to criticize them. Because the moment you criticize them or ridicule them for their beliefs, you are hardening them against them ever opening up to you again. You have to earn people's trust. There's a lot of things of the message of the gospel that people will not even be receptive to until they've been melted, and they won't be melted until they're in a relationship, a softening relationship where they know that you really care. Uh, I had an assignment for you, is it? Okay. Can, if you could hand that out. I just wanted to make sure you guys understand this. Can I just have one? So this is your assignment. You have till Thursday morning. Sorry, it's only 48 hours. But it shouldn't take that long. Your assignment for this class is to take each one of these words that are somewhat Christian cliches and put them into language simple, non-Christianese, non-cliché language that people will understand. I need to warn you that this is going to be more difficult than you might think, and your grade will reflect how well that you can put these into words that people will understand. I've done this exercise before with groups, and initially people just start answering these with a bunch more Christian cliches. Uh, born again. It means you've put your faith in the finished work of Christ and you're trusting the blood of Christ. That's not going to help someone. It's just rearranged code of Christianese. I, am, I will let you use Christian terminology in the answer on the condition that any time you do, you give a definition of it that does not include Christianese. So this exercise will be an, it will help you think in terms of how to communicate to the unbeliever. It'll also show you how well you really understand the gospel. Because even though a lot of people know all the Christian words of the gospel, they don't really understand what it means to be saved. They don't really understand what it means to have Christ be the Lord of your life. They don't really understand what it means to be reconciled to God. So, feel free to go through my, the notes from my first two talks, but just really try to put these words into a language that an unbeliever will understand. Thank you.